Hello, hello, and welcome to Food Network Obsessed. This is the podcast where we dish on all things Food Network with your favorite Food Network stars. I'm your host, Jamie Sire, and today we have a chef and man of many talents on the show to chat about bringing the heat with fire and flavor and how his diverse background and experiences blend to form his global culinary style. He's a celebrity chef, restaurateur, and award-winning recording artist. You've watched him on shows such as Man Fire Food, Everyday Exotic, and Heat Seekers. It's Roger Mooking. Roger, welcome to the podcast. As a girl who grew up camping in Montana, I am very excited to talk to the man behind Man Fire Food. So where did this affinity for fire begin? I'm a descendant of Zinjanthropus, man. So that, that's a part of the equation. But, you know, when I was a little kid, me and my friends used to play this game called Matches. Sounds like a dangerous game. Yeah, it's a dangerous game. So I think that we invented matches, but I'm sure there are many kids around the world who've played similar games. So what it is, is a bunch of teenage boys stand in a circle <laughs> right? okay. with a book of matches and you wait till it's the spring thaw that's like still dry before the summer and the green grass comes. And you stand in this circle in a really large open field. <laughs> I don't recommend this thing. Okay. And you drop a match on the ground, lit. It catches the grass and then you wait for the very last opportune moment before the fire takes over the entire field and you try and okay. stomp it out. You try and wow. stomp it out before <laughs> it takes over the field. I was telling that story at the time it was Bruce Seidel and I was telling that story to Bruce one day and we were laughing, you know, my God, this is so ridiculous. And then a couple of months later, they were sitting on this concept for man fire food that Irene Wong had created. And they're like, I now I know the perfect host. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. That is a like a success story like I've never heard. I mean, did you ever think that you throwing matches into a dry field of grass would result in a television show? No, it may result in that. Maybe some like prison time or something. But, <laughs> but no, never television show. But look at that. Eh? Nine seasons deep. Why do you think it is that, you know, us as humans, we are so drawn to fire and open flame in general, but specifically for food preparation? Well, I mean, if, if fire is just a primal thing, right? You know, you start a fire, it's mesmerizing, it's hypnotizing. You just stare at it. It gives you, mm -hmm. provides you warmth. It will dry out your clothing. It'll help you cook food. Um, from an indigenous perspective, there's a ritual to fire. In many, many cultures around the world, there's a ritual to fire and it's sacred and honored and respected and has to be burned in a very specific way and put out and extinguished and guarded in a very specific way. So, you know, there's just so, you know, astrology is connected to fire. So there's just so many things that connect us to fire. And I think that there's just something that really draws us back to, to the, all of those primal elements when we start cooking over fire and be able to nourish ourselves with this, you know, sacred thing, you know? Mesmerizing is the is the perfect, you know, descriptor. I, you know, I mentioned camping in Montana. Like that was one of my favorite things to do, just sit by the fire and stare into it because it is it is mesmerizing and it, it is it kind of takes on a life of its own. What are some of your personal favorite things to cook over an open flame? I really love really good smoked beef rib. It's just mm. spectacular. So, so good. Really good smoked chicken. I love some smoked cheese and smoking salts as well. Lamb. I'm really bad at doing the one of anything. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's okay. 
one of the most interesting or unique things you've ever cooked over fire? There's been a lot. I mean, we've cooked a whole cow and there was an adventure around that. There was maybe too much drinking happening with our <laughs> guests <laughs> and, it, and it carried over through the night. And, the you know, the cow had a lot of fat on it. So it was dripping and rendering fat and flaring up. So there was like hoses involved and okay. alcohol and buckets. And <laughs> that was a, a really good adventure. But, you know, it turned out really good. We were injecting it with wine and all kinds wow. of spices and stuff while it's cooking. And so it was really, really cool. How many people were involved? I mean, that's a that's a pretty big undertaking to to eat a whole cow. Well, what they do is they they cook this cow for fun and and then they uh, have a for a charity event. So it feeds hundreds of people. It's pretty incredible. Very, very cool. Well, we've talked about fire. Let's talk about where that love of food came from. Can you share just some of your earliest food memories? Making dumplings, standing at the counter. I was maybe three, four years old in uh, Tobago. I was born in Trinidad. So we were in Tobago at the time. Trinidad and Tobago were in Tobago at the time. So I remember wrapping, I was obsessed with dumplings. And in mm. Trinidad, we make these dumplings called cow tongue dumplings. They they kind of wow. resemble the shape of a, a oval of your palm, basically. Uh, and it's like flat and thick and wide. So it's like, they call them cow tongues. So it looks like a cow's tongue, right? Okay. So I was obsessed with cow tongue dumplings. And when you bite into them, they kind of squish because there's like no baking powder in it. So when you bite into it, they give like the sound like, <laughs> and it's like it's the most amazing, satisfying thing on planet earth. So that, um, we served that with like curry crab. So curry crab and dumplings is like one of my earliest memories. And, and learning also how to cut up a chicken to make chicken curry. Were those like the first things that you actually learned to cook on your own? Or was there another dish that was kind of the the genesis of this career? I mean, that was stuff that I learned from my parents. But the first things I learned to cook on my own were omelets. And I like mastered omelets. And I used to make this thing called, I, I called it goulash, basically. It was basically scrambled <laughs> eggs with whatever leftovers from the fridge. <laughs> that I liked. And I mashed it Love all it. up. And so it was part omelet, part scrambled eggs thing. And I used to do that thing, go play street hockey in the back and pretend I was Grant Fear. Do you remember the moment you knew you wanted to become a chef? I was three years old and my wow. aunt, you know, you ask little kids, hey, what are you going to be when you grow up? So my aunt did that to me and I, without blinking, I said I was going to be a chef. And I, I, re I remember this moment, you know, and everybody looked at all my aunts and uncles looked at me like, boy, you got no idea what you're talking about. Because all <laughs> that side of the family, my grandfather came from China, ended up in the Caribbean and after a long while opened restaurants, bakeries, and then all my aunts and uncles on that side of the family to this day still run catering companies and restaurants and stuff, right? So I came up in that. So when I said that to them when I was three, they're like, you have no idea what you just said. <laughs> Did they try to, you know, persuade you into other professions or were they supportive? No, the family supported them. You know, we're like food obsessed family. So they were totally mm -hmm. down with it. And also, you know, our parents never pushed us to be anything, you know, like to, to be a part of their profession. They're like, whatever you want to do, however you want to do it, just make sure you're the best at it. Okay, if you want to <laughs> sweep floors, be the best street sweeper on the planet, you know, so yeah. that always stuck with me. You have such a diverse background. Your grandfather is Chinese, immigrated to Trinidad, where your dad was born, and then you were raised in Canada. So with this mix of Caribbean and Chinese influences, what meals dominated the menu in your household growing up? 
You know, I grew up in a family and I thought everybody lived like this. Uh, we would have like roti for breakfast or, mm-hmm. or bacon saltfish for breakfast. Then we would have Chinese food for lunch. And then we'd have, you know, I lived in Edmonton at the time. So then we would have like pierogies and kubasa for dinner, you know. <laughs> and I, I thought everybody ate like that until I went to like my friend's houses in Edmonton. And it was like, oh, snap. What is what is cheese whiz like? <laughs> Toast. Well, what's, that's what's a fair toast? question. No <laughs> you <know> what? What? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if you were to draw a Venn diagram of Chinese and Caribbean foods, how would they be alike and what makes them unique from each other? I mean, there's a lot that plays together there. You know, for instance, like cumin is very popular in Szechuan cuisine and it's very mm-hmm. popular in East Indian cuisine, which is is subsequently very popular in uh, the Caribbean and some of the spice mixes and the the masalas and stuff, right? So we get a lot of those kind of spices that are happening just over time through the spice trading routes and um, through slave trade routes, actually, you know, moving moving goods throughout the communities. Those things are are all very prevalent. Um, A large Chinese population came to the Caribbean, actually, around the 1920s. There's a very heavy marriage between Chinese cuisine and Caribbean cuisine. So this where you see stuff like duck curry come into play. You'll you'll see that happening in um, certain parts of the Caribbean, right? So those things definitely come together. But, you know, they're very different. They're very different in many ways as well. For instance, in the in the Caribbean, we don't use cornstarch for thickening, where that's a very prevalent thing to do in Chinese cuisine. Mm-hmm. You know, things like fish sauce and shrimp paste, those aren't part of the cuisine in the Caribbean um, that are specific to that. And, and, you know, that works vice versa in many different aspects as well. So, you know, same, same, but different. Your culinary style has also been shaped by formal training with Japanese, French and Swiss German chefs. How do these come together to create your globally inspired cooking style? Well, you know, I had a layer to that, you know, because my family is like so di- diverse as well. You know, there's mm-hmm. if, when I've done genealogy on my family, there's like Spanish, obviously oh. African, um, there's Chinese, Southeast Asia, Dutch, Irish, there's all kinds of stuff, you know, but predominantly it's like African and Chinese. And so when I look at that, you know, I grew up in the most diverse of the islands in the Caribbean, Trinidad and Tobago, heavy African influence, uh, like I said, Chinese influence, Indian influence, Caribbean Indian influence. So it's the most diverse and a, and a lot of influence coming from Venezuela and South America as well, because it's you can actually see it on a clear day. Right. It's a very diverse community in the Caribbean, which is unique in, in that part of the Caribbean. Then my family moved to Edmonton, Alberta, where there was probably not another black family for 500 miles. You know, then I was surrounded by a lot of Ukrainian and Polish cuisine and learning all that kind of stuff and North American cuisines. Like I never had beef stew in, in my life. So those kind of things. And then going to into formal training and learning all these different chefs, all of those things, I would say, contributed to uh, my trajectory as much as the formal training and the culinary training in real time. And all those things piecing together really kind of give me this perspective of the world and really, you know, opening and embracing the world because I thought it was just regular that people have dim sum for breakfast and curry goat for dinner, right? So <laughs> so I just kind of live that way. And I, that's all I know. And then when I went into the culinary world, it's like, well, why do I have to limit what I know and, and, and what I have access to and what I authentically live in uh, to try and like appease X, for instance, right? Mm-hmm. And so I just stayed true on that road and just try and embrace all communities and and uh, learn from as many people as possible from all walks of life. And, you know, and that's fared me well as in terms of learning and continuing to learn and develop my professional trajectory. 
but also just feeding my personal curiosity, which seems to be insatiable. Is there a specific dish that kind of sums up, you know, your your point of view that you just described that is comes from all of these different backgrounds and influences? I don't know if there's a specific dish because I don't ever cook the same thing twice when I'm at home. You know, if you come okay. to my restaurant, it'll be exactly the same thing every single time. Sure. I've been cooking for myself for a lot, lot of years and for my family and we don't we don't eat the same exact thing twice. So really, I yeah, I can't say that there's a specific dish like that that speaks to that because it's just always experimenting, always trying different things. I'm still making basically goulash from back in the day. In different, <laughs> different ways. That's so interesting. So you don't have like a go to dish that you're like, I'm tired. I'm just going to whip this up. But you just kind of switch it up every single time. No, I look what's available, what's looking fresh. Sometimes maybe it's leftovers is dry in their decision, you know, or mm-hmm. sometimes you bought a really good piece of fish and, uh, you know, I bought it yesterday and I got to cook it today kind of thing. Right. And that's right. always the jumping off point is what looks good. What do I feel like? You know, what does the family feel like? You know, did we eat 600 pizzas last night? Well, maybe today we <laughs> eat a salad, you know, we got to balance it out. So I'm always just going by the moment and, and adapting. Are there any destinations out there you have yet to visit that you would like to, in order to kind of add to that global flavor palette. Yeah, yeah. Um, We were supposed to go to Portugal and then pandemic hit. So I I would really, really love to dive into some Portuguese cuisine and see, you know, um, one of my assistants is Portuguese. And so I I would just learn so much from her and she'd just feed me stuff, actually her husband, and he would feed me, they would feed me so much stuff and I'd be like, oh man, this Portuguese food's so good and how they (laughs) mix like meat and seafood in really interesting ways, so good and fresh. And so Portugal is one place on, on the list for sure. Sure. Is that a family trip or, or would that be something just strictly for, for food exploration? Well, you know, what we would do pre-pandemic is me and my wife once a year would go on a big trips, you know. So okay. we've been to like Japan, we've been to France, we've been to Barcelona, Spain, we've been to Cambodia, like Thailand. So we do one trip like that a year and then pandemic hit. So we stopped. So we're hoping to pick up that that trajectory again, you know. Yeah, absolutely. I'm right with you on that. You are a father of four, though. How do you foster curiosity about food and their lives? Well, we do a couple of different things. One is every single week when we grocery shop, we buy one thing that has never come into the house ever before. Right. So it could be a packaged good. It could be a fruit, piece of produce, a meat cut, something, something that we've never, ever brought into the house before that enters the house. And we try it out we experiment with it. We learn about it. If I know about it, then I'll cook with it. If I don't know about it, my wife will cook about it. If we don't both don't know about it, then we just read up on it, learn and see what people do. And then we just try and figure it out. And so the kids see that experimentation and they're they're curious, too. It's like, oh, what's what's coming this week? You know, and so when we come in the house with the groceries, they run to the door because it's like Christmas for them every single week. You know, it's like, oh, what's that. the what's that? What's in the bag? Oh, what's this? And they're picking out the bags like, oh, so they're, they're, we're fostering their curiosity that way. And like I said, I never cook the same thing twice. So their palates are constantly getting new information, right? What's a recent thing that you came home with that was maybe difficult or hard to cook or hard to convince them to, to try? We recently bought a sweetie grapefruit. It's a switch citrus fruit that's like looks like a big grapefruit. The flavor is a little bit more floral as well okay. as being citrusy. So we brought that home. That was something it's, like I said, sometimes it's just that simple. Just cut it and eat it and experience it that way. And that's what we did. Do you have any advice for parents who maybe are struggling with a picky eater? Yeah, for sure. You know, it's what we've discovered is that, you know, a kid might say, I don't like coconut. And we're like, OK. 
Try coconut water. No, I don't like coconut water. Okay, try coconut jelly. Oh, I kind of like the coconut jelly. Ooh, try coconut flakes crusted on this shrimp or whatever. You know, ooh, I like mm-hmm. that. Or, or coconut inside of a bread. In Trinidad, we make this holiday bread called sweet bread. It has a lot of grated coconut in it. And so they'd be like, oh, I like the sweet bread. I'm like, well, there's a lot of coconut in that sweet bread. You say you don't <laughs> like coconut. So it's not that you don't like coconut. You don't like coconut water. Right. So we always will try whenever we hit a roadblock like that, we'll always try that same product in a different format because Lord knows there's always a different format. Is there anything that they absolutely will not eat? One of my daughters is just push mushrooms to the side all day long. <laughs> okay. So we've just stopped. Like if I cook something with mushrooms, I'll just pick it out for her. But she gets the rest of it. And the flavor of the mushroom is in there. But, you know, who knows? She might come around eventually. Was there anything you didn't eat growing up that, that you love now? Cauliflower. I used to hate cauliflower, boy. <laughs> Ooh, it's like with a passion. But I saw enough like bougie restaurants do it. And I was like, okay, let me revisit the cauliflower thing, you know? Well, as if you don't have enough going on, you're also an award-winning recording artist. Do you remember the first CD that you owned? You mean actual CD or vinyl? Because I was buying vinyl. Let's do both. Let's do what, what was your first vinyl? And then when CDs became a thing, what was your first CD? My first vinyl was NWA straight out of Compton. <laughs> I love it. The first CD I bought was Graceland Paul Simon. Okay. So who are your your musical influences? Obviously, it sounds like we're going down a, another, you know, variety path here. Yeah, man. I'm like, I'm a globalist, you know, I'm a human yeah. from out the gate. You know what I mean? So, um, you know, I grew up, my dad, aside from like a lot of cooking in our household, my dad was an avid record collector. And my brother was a DJ. So oh. we were collecting records from Day one, you know, my dad, everything from Santana, Simon and Garfunkel, Nana Moscuri, old school Calypso, singing Francine and, and Lord Kitchener and all these people from Trinidad and then hip hop, like all the hip hop classics coming up, you know, Run DMC, Furious Five, Grandmaster Flash, Nucleus, all those records. Yeah. But, you know, I love I love like Simon and Garfunkel and Graceland and and all these like so, so much music out there. It's just beautiful, you know. Yeah. Uh, do you still have a, an extensive vinyl collection? Okay, okay. So Jamie, you got <laughs> me on this one. I used okay. to have like two thousand pieces of vinyl. Oh my gosh! Everything, like everything under the sun. And I was moving so many times. I used to move like every year, you know. Oh wow. And before I had family and kids and all that. And I just moved with them one too many times. And it's and actually it's the, the house before the house that we start having kids in is when I said, OK, I'm not moving this all these records one last time. I sold them all. Oh, no. Oh, my God. You know how many crates of records that is? To, and then this place That's in that space. And I was like, oh, my God. So I sold them all. And I, I regret it. I, I, yeah. I, I, I really curated those records. You know, I would be on tour and every place we stopped on tour, we'd stop and like be in Victoria, B.C. and be like, yo, let's go find a record store and go dig in for digging in the crates. You know, we'd be in like Scottsdale, Arizona on tour. I'd be like, yo, let's go find a record store and go dig in the crates at the old vintage places. And so I collected a lot of records and carried them through airports and in my bags. And, <laughs> you know, I curated that 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 collection, but I, I gave it up and I regret it. Who are your current favorite artists right now? My current favorite artist. There's an artist named Ondara, O-N-D-A-R-A. It's incredible, incredible. I love Kendrick Lamar. 
I love Snoop's new record is really good, actually. <laughs> Snoop, <laughs> Snoop just came with a record. And he's talking his ish on that record. Yes. Yeah, beautiful thing. What did you think of the uh, halftime performance? Yo, I thought it was just monumental to see that many, like just a hip hop extravaganza happening at the Super Bowl. You know, for, yeah. for me as a kid growing up in that era and kind of it, coming up in the birth of that era as well, mm-hmm. to see the the art form come that far on such a big stage like that. Uh, it's just as a monumental um, moment for the culture, you know? Yeah, I absolutely loved it for sure. What do you like to listen to while you're in the kitchen cooking? Mostly I listen to podcasts and news. And then sometimes I just put on like classical playlists, you know, just common or like jazz playlists and just calm, really chill music. But when I'm in the kitchen, it's, you know, it's really noisy in my house, right? I got four little young kids. They are noisy, running around. (laughs) The dog is barking. And when we start cooking, the dog is barking more because they want some treats. And they're running because the kids are hungry and they're freaking (laughs) out. And so I just put on really calm music or some, you know, educational podcasts. Roger tells us how he got his start in TV. And later we talk about his favorite barbecue and his tip for eating very spicy food. When did being on television come into the mix and was being a host or, you know, TV personality always part of the plan or did that just evolve naturally? I was coming from the music industry and I'd done pretty good in the music industry. Right. So I kind of absolved myself like I didn't want to be famous ever again. I was like, I never want to be famous ever again. I love making the crafts, but the other stuff is just stupid. You know, when I started doing cooking, my first job as an executive chef was around the corner from where Food Network Canada was just launching and ramping up all these shows. So. They, after a while, they kind of introduced themselves. I just knew them as Holly and Tanya, you know, and after a while, they introduced themselves as Food Network people. And I'm like, oh, that's cool. You know, cool. You know, hope you liked your dinner. Have a nice day. You know? <laughs> but they're super cool, lovely people. So what we'd always just kick in, have jokes and stuff like that. And I'm real friendly with those people still to those days. But uh, they said, look, you know, you have a good personality. The food is good and all this stuff. Have you thought of like doing shows? And I'm like, no, nah, not really. And I was really just a hesitant host. I was happy to just be an anonymous cook, just work, pay my bills, go home, call it a day, you know? But they came at me and I, and I liked them. So I was like, oh, okay, let's go mess around. And then they introduced me to this woman, Leslie Marklinger, who's running uh, the program in Canada. And we hit it off. And interestingly enough, Leslie, a couple jobs previous to that, Leslie used to be a talent booker at the CBC. So she used to book my band back in the day <laughs> on CBC. And now she's like booking talent for Food Network in Canada, right? So we really hit it off in like a 30 minute meeting turned into like a two hour meeting. And a couple of years later, 2006, we started developing Everyday Exotic. In 2008, we launched Everyday Exotic. And then I did really well in Canada. We did um, 52 episodes of that. And then we started selling that around the world. It went to 40 countries. And then America picked it up when they launched Cooking Channel. Um, and then I was been, you know, rolling with that ever since. And, and you've also been all over the country exploring, you know, the ways Americans cook with fire on man fire food, as we kind of alluded to at the top of this conversation. What parts of the country are really doing it right? You know, you, obviously you go to Texas and you get all those Texas classics and stuff like that. Right. But what's happening in, in the world is, 
you know, diversity is expanding throughout North America, right? Mm -hmm. So, and Houston, for instance, is one of the most diverse cities in America. So what you're starting to see is the traditional Texas barbecue techniques marrying with things like uh, Filipino cuisine Mm -hmm. or Vietnamese cuisine. So you can now go, there's, you know, this one place we shot koi barbecue and they're doing Vietnamese pho and they're putting slabs of Texas smoked brisket on top of the pho. Right. So you're starting to see stuff like that happen. Or you go to hometown barbecue there in Brooklyn that, that you might know, Bill Durney's spot. Mm-hmm. And he's doing like some Korean techniques um, with 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 classic Texas smoke, old school smoking and like southern smoking techniques. Right. Because he grew up in Brooklyn and, you know, Brooklyn is like so many parts of the world are happening in Brooklyn. And, and so he brought what he came up with, like so being around so many cultures and marrying those things. Right. Mm-hmm. So you're starting to see a lot of that kind of stuff happening, which I'm I'm finding really, really exciting. But, you know, there's just beautiful classics like my man, Rodney Scott. You know, he's got several spots now. Just if you want that classic whole mm-hmm. hog, just done right. Rodney's definitely killing it. But, you know, so much of the country is doing so many dynamic things with fire. You know, there's Renee Redzipi up in the up in Seattle area in Oregon, and she's doing amazing things. We spent some time with her, too, and um, really progressive ways of cooking with fire. Right. Yeah. I mean, cooking with fire really feels like a ritual of sorts. What kind of cultural significant moments have you experienced doing that show? You know, there's been so, so much. I've learned so much from so many people. You know, I met this one woman who is an archaeologist um, and also a fire enthusiast. So she is she studies how people cook with fire throughout the centuries. Um, and she's pulled all these techniques and built all these different ovens and contraptions. And she did this one technique with me that was really amazing where you take um, dried pine needles and you stand up mussels on a wood board and you stand them upright. And then you cover them with this pile of harvested dried pine needles and you light the pine needles on fire and it turns into this big kind of fire on top of the wood cutting board. Then it dissipates and it's just enough fire to allow the muscles to just open and then get the aromatics coming from the pine needles as well. Right. So like that's an old French country technique. And she showed me that technique, you know, so boom, right there, you know, like I learned a lot of French cuisine, but I never seen that. And this what I love about food is that you'll never learn everything about food in one lifetime, right? Yeah. How about what's your personal favorite style of barbecue? What you really got to address here is the nomenclature of barbecue, right? So when you think of barbecue, what do you think of? Growing up in Montana, it was just grilling. You know, it wasn't necessarily like, you know, smoking something for hours. I think now I, I think of barbecue. I definitely... Texas comes to mind where, you know, you're thinking of brisket, you're thinking of pulled pork, maybe from one of the other areas, whole hog, like you mentioned with Rodney Scott. Yeah, I mean, I definitely I definitely go more traditional, but obviously every culture probably has their own version of barbecue, right? It's interesting about the nomenclature because traditional moves from one thing to the other, right? So in Canada, like Montana, (laughs) like Montana, when we say, yo, we're going to have a barbecue, as long as somebody brings some kind of food and you put it over some type of fire, we're barbecuing and there's beer and stuff like that. that, That's a barbecue, right? 
But if you say barbecue in South Carolina mm-hmm. and it's anything but whole hog, low and slow, that's not barbecue. They don't right. consider like ribs. They don't like it's a whole different thing. If you're in Texas and you're talking barbecue, then it's a whole gamut of a range of things from ribs to brisket to sausages and depending mm-hmm. on what part. So it really comes down to nomenclature. And it's a really, really tricky thing. Like what's my favorite barbecue? Persian barbecue. It's lots of beautiful kebabs, man. Spice kebabs. And then they they grill the tomato with it as well. And then you get the fresh bread and it's like slap that in there. It's oh, sauce it up. So good. Delicious, you know. <laughs> in your opinion, is there is there a wrong way to serve barbecue? Raw and cold would be two definite failures. Okay. Yeah. I don't even know if that would qualify if it was raw. That's a good point, actually. It's a good point. Yeah. You've also co-hosted Heat Seekers with Aron Sanchez, where you travel around the States in search of the spiciest plates. What is the hottest thing that you've ever tasted? Okay, so we were in Florida. We were shooting with the mayor of the small town in Florida. And the mayor was trying to keep it cool. But these people, like, they burnt, like, a whole bunch of different kind of chilies. They torched them. <laughs> then they gr- So, basically, imagine, like, a bowl half full of chilies. Like, a Vietnamese okay. pho bowl, right? Mm-hmm. Half full of chilies. And then they just filled it up with broth and then pureed it. We, that's Whoa. basically what we drank with some noodles in it, right? Okay. And, man, the mayor was there sweating. And, like, we're dying where the nose are running. And the mayor's, like, <laughs> playing it cool. As soon as the camera stopped rolling, he's like, oh, my God, I got to go. He ran to the bathroom. But that was the, that was the hottest thing ever. That was the ho- I mean, how, how do you cope with something that's, like, super spicy? I mean, is milk the answer or do you do you have another trick up your sleeve? So we uh, we came up with a couple of different techniques. One, we would like drink the pink stuff before you eat. Mm, mm-hmm. And then after that, chase it with Greek yogurt laden with honey. Okay. That's the that's the magic right there. OK. Yeah. So if I ever go on hot ones, that I'll, I'll remember that. What ingredients do you love incorporating into your own dishes that, you know, really bring the heat? Um, I have a recent re-obsession with cumin right now. I really mm. love cumin I, and I use it aggressively, actually. So, you know, sometimes you use it sparingly, but I've been using it aggressively lately with fresh herbs and it does magic to so, so many dishes like that. So I've been playing with that. Um, in the realm of chilies, I love all chilies as long as they stop at around the Scotch bonnet habanero. Okay. Anything <laughs> past the Scotch bonnet habanero is just unnecessary. You can't really taste them. Yeah. It's just <laughs> unnecessary. It's just, yeah. You're just trying to like, you know, win a bet. Well, you've also been a judge on Chopped and also Guy's Grocery Games. When it comes to Triple G, what's your favorite part about filming? Yo, you know, it's just seeing the environment, man. That's a beautiful set, man. It's like so many people working on that set and everybody's so coordinated and there's such a great, great vibe coming off that set. And I tell you, Guy Fieri is just straight up one of the greatest humans walking the planet. He just is such a gracious, kind, beautiful soul, just takes care of everybody around him. He's just a beautiful person, man, and he deserves all the success that he has because he's just such a generous person, you know. So just being in that environment around those people, everybody is just all love, no drama all day because everybody's just working for the same goal because there's just so much love that comes from the top down on that set. I love that. I mean, you can really you can feel that it seems like everybody, you know, that from the judges to to guy to everybody there competing everyone's just, you know, kind of like a a family, it seems. So it's always good to hear that that's that's really what it's like as well. Um, Does it get intense on set during the competitions? 
Oh, yeah, it's heated. You know, it's people really don't know what they're going to do. They really, you know, it's really they're challenging. Time is crunching. We're watching guys walking around about to change the rules on you any second. Like, <laughs> so you don't know what's going on. He just and it seems like it's just nothing is really I mean, a lot is planned, but it has the feeling like if guy just wants to throw a haymaker in, the haymaker's coming. And he just made that decision audible right now. Boom. And everybody <laughs> got to deal with it. And so that there's all that and everybody doesn't know what's going on. So it's really exciting as a judge to be part of that environment, you know? What about when you go grocery shopping? What is I know you said you like to pick up different things um, each trip, but is there is there a couple of things that you always grab at the store? No, never. Oh, butter, <laughs> butter, salt. That's about it. Everything else is fair game. Well, this has been such a blast. We're going to finish off with some rapid fire questions. And then we have one final question that we ask all of our guests on Food Network Obsessed. So rapid fire round when it comes to hot wings, drums or flats? Flats. Blue cheese or ranch? Neither. Chef that you would love to cook dinner with? Emerald Lagasse. Mm. Favorite game to play with your daughters? It's time to wash the dishes. I just cook dinner. <laughs> it sounds like a really fun game for that. <laughs> that's that's why I started cooking uh, at a young age because I didn't want to do the dishes. Oh, slick, slick. Herb that you always have on hand. I really love dill. Dill is my mm. new my new obsession currently. Okay. I like dill as well. Uh what about seasoning you can't live without? Uh fish sauce. Okay. Go to easy snack. Uh, chow. In the Caribbean, we make this dish called chow and you use any kind of fruit like mango, oranges, mm. papaya, and you mix it with chilies and citrus and uh, a couple spices and salty and it's delicious. That sounds fantastic. Oh man, it's the best <laughs> snack just before dinner, like, you know, a couple hours yeah, before. Yeah, I'm going to try that. Spot. Favorite pizza toppings? Ground beef, red onion, and jalapeno. Mm, okay. Throwing a little curveball there. I like that. All right. So final question. Uh, like I said, we asked this to every single guest that we have here on Food Network Obsessed. What would be on the menu for your perfect food day? So we want to hear what you're eating for breakfast, lunch, dinner, dessert. If you want to throw in some snacks, that's totally up to you. There are no rules to this question. So calories don't count. You can time travel, spend you know absurd amounts of money. Um, anybody can cook it for you. And we just want to hear what would be your ideal food day. Okay, so I might go to uh, Paris and get a classic baguette with mm -hmm. that really good French butter yep. and some like shaved truffles inside Ooh, of it. Oh, okay. That, that would be in some nice salt, you know, some fleur de sel. That yep. would be just nice. Sit on a bench, watch Yum. everybody smoke. and Watch the world go by. <laughs> yeah, that would be cool. I like that for breakfast and Paris is beautiful. Then I would go to actually my favorite restaurant in the world is, is this place called Davies Corner. It's basically a cab stand type of spot in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia, in an okay. area called BSC. They do this dish called roti chanai, which is a very thin, crispy, tender type of roti. It's a little bit sweet. And then you mm. can dip it with like fish pickle or curry lentils and stuff mm. like that. That is like one of my, that's, I could eat that every day. And then I would have like a dip over for a little bit of a, uh, some pho. I love pho. I mentioned it like 10 times already in this thing, but <laughs> I have a nice bowl of pho. I go to Vietnam near the, the border of Cambodia. There's some good little spots to get some pho. Um, and I would dive into a big bowl of pho. Then for dinner, I might get a uh, goat roti with some tomato choka on the side, right? Mm. Uh, made by 
we had an old family friend in Trinidad when I was growing up and she made great, great cobra. So if I go back in time and visit her and have mm. her bless us, Sharon, you know, bless us with her thing and some dumplings on the side with that. And then for dessert, I mean, oof, I don't know. I, I really love ice cream. Man, I love ice cream, coconut ice cream. We just Yum. like go down to uh, Trinidad or uh, Colombia. They do really good ice cream. Or actually, have you been to Istanbul? I have not. No, I've always wanted to go. Yeah. Turkey has the best ice cream on. Really? Earth. Yeah. They have this mechanism where they chill these vats and they beat they beat the cream, basically. OK. And they beat it. They beat it. And that, that's how the, it forms the ice cream. And instead of churning it, they sit there and manually beat it with these things wow. and then dig it out. It's incredible. So smooth and creamy and delicious. So maybe I fly over to Istanbul sure. and get a Turkish ice cream pistachio flavor, please. <laughs> well, that sounds fantastic and a, and a perfect end to your perfect food day. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us. It was so much fun. Thank you so much. So much, Jamie. I appreciate it. Food Network Obsessed. So much fun chatting with Roger. He is a well-traveled renaissance man of our time. And you can catch more of him on Discovery+. Plus. Thanks so much for listening and make sure to follow us wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss a thing. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please rate and review. We love it when you do that. That's all for now. We'll catch you foodies next Friday. 